If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. I want to tell you about the new hit podcast, Murder and Alliance, from Maggie Freeling and the Obsessed Network. In the tradition of podcasts like Serial, Murder and Alliance is a real-time investigative podcast uncovering the truth behind the murder of 26-year-old Yvonne Lane in Alliance, Ohio. On April Fool's Day in 1999, the young mother was murdered in her home while her children slept. The murder was brutal. Yvonne was nearly decapitated. It was almost certainly committed by someone she knew. Her ex-boyfriend, David Thorne, was convicted of the murder and sentenced to life without parole. But he couldn't have killed her. More than 10 witnesses saw him two counties away at the exact time the murder was being committed. Now, 22 years later, Maggie and her team of private investigators, with help of Jason Baldwin of the West Memphis Three, are on the ground in Alliance, tracking down witnesses, uncovering new evidence, and learning the secrets of the town where nearly everyone in Yvonne's life had a motive to kill her. And they're reporting on this story in real time. Join Maggie and Jason on their quest for the truth as they seek justice for Yvonne Lane. Find and subscribe to Murder in Alliance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Murder in Alliance. Check it out wherever you listen. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 19, where we opened up a new can of worms in the Jennifer Jeffley case. This week's episode covered a lot of things. Some of it was just a hodgepodge of new information filling in some gaps, and some of it throws our entire timeline into question. I'm joined here in the studio today by Mr. Mike Bussing. What's up? And Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, hey. And we're going to take your questions right after a quick break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. All right, before we get into listener questions, Zach, what are your thoughts on the episode? This episode really had a lot of nuts and bolts facts. Mm -hmm. That's what I like to hear. That's what I need to hear. 
Right. It's cool to break down the statement analysis. It's cool that, you know, that's, that's whatever. Right. But I needed this episode. So I'm so happy you delved into this and, and kind of put it all out there. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. I hopefully, it seems like the listeners, based on the feedback, enjoyed it. It wasn't the, the episodes like this are hard for me to write because, you know, what I'm always trying to do is take the work I'm doing every week and try to write it into a flowing narrative, linear narrative that makes sense. And I was, I, I was talking to Mike early in the week. I'm like, I, I've got 25 things. I don't know where to fit them in. So I'm just going to just, here they are. And, uh, can of worms. Open the whole can of worms. I needed it. I really enjoyed this episode a lot. And it was nice to hear everything broken down. It was nice to get some clarification on things that we're, that we're not sure about. Just even some of the statements that you were able to come across. I mean, that, I think it was a huge episode. You know, one of the weird things is, I, I do want to point out, I mentioned that the Keith Truesdale statement was in the DA, the, the note about the calling the police was in the DA file and it wasn't in the police file. Uh, it was pointed out to me by, uh, uh, I think Danny Cash pointed it out to me. It actually is in the police file, but for some reason, neither of us can figure out why this is, but it's in the police file twice. And the second time it's in there, it has the note and it's signed. The first time it doesn't have the note and it's not signed. It's kind of, it almost looks like they just kind of like included, cut and pasted it into the narrative portion of a supplement. And then later, here's the actual statement. Hmm. But the fact that the note wasn't in there is super weird. But it was in the police file. It just, you know, is where a lot of this stuff came from. When you see, when you, when you, when you're all said and done with this case file, I've got close to a thousand pages of material that I'm going through. More than that, actually, counting the trial transcripts. And so when you see something that's repeated, you know, in, in two, three, four, five different places in the case file, you don't re. I don't reread it every single time. I know what it says as soon as I come across it. But in this case. I'm glad it took the time to dig back through the the um, the DA's file and go piece by piece uh, because then we also found a lot of little things that may not it didn't really seem significant maybe at one time, um, but little things like uh, how much money Catalina made you know that we now know she only made six hundred twenty seven dollars a month was her total income. Uh, we filled in a lot of gaps and it, it did help me too try to, to start to more solidify what actually went on that day. And little things like the jewelry. When you when you talked about the jewelry, right. that there was that there was two different jewelry boxes, you know, one that had the costume jewelry, but one that had real jewelry, and right. it was right there and left. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I kind of forgot about that, and I don't think we have a question about it. But yeah, that there was another big deal when we were, we're talking about whether this was a robbery or not. You know, if you know, there's someone like it. Did the killers get the knife from her drawer? Mm-hmm. Uh, if they did, right there on the counter was a silver case that had seemingly real jewelry in it something pretty easy to take that was left behind and and you would think that i mean something obviously i don't know but it doesn't seem like that's something that's very trackable either right so yeah. it'd be easy to take and and pass and get rid of especially in 96 i think there's more there, there's more checks and balances in place with with like pawn shops now mm-hmm. than there used to be but i feel like in 96 yeah you could take that to any gold silver shop or pawn shop and and get rid of that stuff but it was again it was left behind so moving forward into the episode and and i know i i'm sure we'll have questions about the timeline so i have some questions but i won't bring those up right now but i think one of my biggest things that we talked about is why was catalina so afraid of this the traffic i feel like there's something there if she's mentioning that she's afraid of the traffic it's one thing to say that the traffic bothers her right but to use the word afraid i don't it's something about that just struck weird to me. I, I, I don't know. Cause you know, on June say it's the same thing that she was afraid and, and Catalina like seemed genuinely was afraid because according to the note that we had, the Janine Smith note, 
she'd come in and complain multiple times, but wouldn't tell the managers which apartment it was. You know, she so she must have been more. You know, there's just a lot of scary traffic, and we keep it, and would, would never share which apartment number it was. So she was genuinely afraid. With, with that being said, there's a million reasons why that could be. Somebody pointed out, and, you, and I hate to put it this way, but it, it's it's something that can't be discounted. Is some of that could be as simple as racism. That could be. You know, what I mean, it, just just the fact that there was multiple black people coming in and out of the apartment might have spooked her. That could be. You know, or, or it could be nothing like that. It could just be the the noises, the you know, the, the the number of people, the who knows what it was that was so scary to her. I will point out though that it, it would sound like it was less of an issue of of the potential sex work. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like that's what was going on. No, it doesn't at all. And, and what leads me to to think that too is is if they're having a lot of traffic. I'm thinking like parties. I'm thinking you know they talk about the smoke at one point, right? Maybe it was you know, marijuana smoke, maybe it was something that she was thinking, okay, there's, there's a lot of drugs here, you know, especially nowadays pot is out there. Right, Everybody yeah. does it. Your freaking doctor does it. You know right, what I mean? Yeah. But like at that time you're thinking, oh, these are like hardcore drug dealers. Maybe they have guns. Maybe they have knives. Maybe, they, right. and maybe that's why she's afraid. Yeah. And it just doesn't seem like if there's, you know, if we're talking about John's right, going in and out of an apartment, like that doesn't seem like that would be, you would think that's one person coming in and out at a time. Yeah. It's not a party. Yeah, that wouldn't be something I would think that would scare someone. I don't know, but but that was it was it was the she talked about the noise and the amount of, and the amount of people coming in and out. So yeah, that sounds to me more like just partying. Uh, it could be partying with drugs. I, I know Coin hinted at trial that that maybe he thought that Eva was dealing drugs, uh, but I don't I don't think that's the case. There's no we don't have any evidence. At least we don't have any evidence to support that. But yeah, it, it, it's interesting that she was. Why was she so afraid? And, and and I tend to lean towards not, you know, on the nose, white robe racist, but like real, like, like built in, like, like more like institutional racism in the, in the type of racism that, that is just like in people that maybe don't even realize they have a certain bias. And that, that could have been it. There's just, you know, a, a bunch of, you know, she might see a bunch of black people as, oh, maybe they're in a gang or they're drug dealers or Something like that. I don't. I don't know. And, and my other big question, which I know is something that I'm going to put out there that you just can't answer because it's not. There's no answer to it right now. But like the the group of guys that they said were trespassing that they called the police on. I think that's huge. And it, it, again, it depends on what day it is. You know, if if it's really the night before, I think it's big. If it's two nights before, it maybe is not as big. Do you think there's a question about what night it was? Well, if if in the report it says it's the twenty eighth, it's the twenty eighth or twenty ninth. So in in the Janine Smith note, it says in the early morning hours of the 29th and in Keith Truesdale's, he says the 28th. So I guess I just took that to mean if it was the night of the 28th, the morning of the 29th, if it was after midnight, it's technically the The early morning of the 29th. Yeah. No. And that makes sense. I see. And that's where I was confusing with that because I didn't know if he was if he was being accurate with his statement Uh and saying it was the 28th, but still being in the morning of the 28th. Right. So it kind of is weird right there, but still like. Who are those guys? And again, I know that's something you can't answer right now, but it's a huge question for me is who are those guys? Oh, me too. And I'm still waiting on my open. I, I checked right before we came in here uh, on my open records request portal to see if if I've got any information on that yet. And it still says in progress, which typically HPD is pretty good about getting me my request. And a delay like this usually doesn't mean it's being ignored. And in, in past experience, that means they're searching through files still. 
to gather everything. And I, and I gave them a task too, because I didn't give them a specific incident. I asked for every call to service from that complex within the, the day before the day of and the day after the, after the murder. Um, so hopefully I'll have that soon and maybe we'll have some information. As, as I said in the episode, I kind of doubt it because Keith said in his statement, the police never showed up. So if they didn't, but that, there still should be a record of it. There still should be a record of the call for service. And maybe they showed up and he didn't know it. You know, all it would take is for them to drive by and realize, oh, the car- party's gone. There's nobody here and then just drive away. All right, guys, let's jump into these questions. Our first one's from Lynn. Hoping you'll be able to corroborate Keith's call to the police the night before Catalina's murder. If police actually responded, it could be a false assumption by the partygoers that Catalina called. If Keith's call can't be corroborated, is he helping apartment management with a cover story showing they tried to stop this party? I think the latter part of that is probably a stretch. I mean, I don't see any indication that they're trying to cover something up, the apartment staff. But yeah, I mean, I, that's like Zach and I were just talking about. I, I think that we need to find out who these people are because, again, we have a whole other set of potential suspects. And, and, and what Lynn says here is exactly right. You know, maybe, it, which would indicate to me that they had, they would have, if this is the case, that they would have some connection to Eva's apartment. If there was a call to the police and they showed up, that maybe they would assume that it was Catalina that called. I think that that, that that that's that's reasonable to assume, but the only reason they would assume that is if maybe they already had prior knowledge from Eva that Catalina had complained about her. So here's a quick silly question. Maybe it's been covered and I just missed it. So essentially that apartment block, I mean, I know there's apartments all over the place, but that, that close apartment block is four apartments, right? Right. Catalina, June Sage. Eva's. Do we know anything about the the fourth apartment that's right there? Well, so yeah, so the building has eight units, um, but as I mentioned before, it's it's kind of split up. So on the right side of the building, if you're facing the front of it, mm-hmm. you got June Sage, or you got June Sage on the corner, and then Catalina, and then you got an apartment above Catalina, uh, which is Eva, and then another another one above June, which we don't know who that was, and then there's like a bunch of mechanical rooms, and then there's four more on the other end. Yeah. Maybe two, at least, at least two, if not four. So that's that's kind of layout. And I don't. What, what were you asking about? About that. So if, the, if we take that first group of four, yeah, that are in that group, that fourth apartment. Do we know any about anything about the tenants or who that could be, or if it was vacant? To me, it's another gaff on the part of the police because clearly the party to me isn't June Sage and it isn't Catalina, right? But it also doesn't mean it's Eva's apartment either, right? It could be that fourth apartment. It, it could be. We don't. We never seen the report that they knocked on that door, that they talked to anybody, that they asked the management about who was in that apartment. We do have the. I think it was in Youngster statement where he talks about someone from that building with with braids uh, that was there, and that's some of what I'm trying to tr- chase down in Houston next week when I when I go there and I'm doing some work, some investigating. Um, see if I can maybe try to with some of these witnesses try to figure out who that person was. Don't know which end of the building she lived on. But yeah, the other thing to point out, if you've looked at the layout of the apartments, is it would seem like, you know, so you have the Janine statement. It says that it was the people from apartment 58 that were partying. Keith is the one who actually called and he says that there's, you know, a bunch of, un, you know, there's a bunch of trespassing black males. He knows who Eva is. We, so we don't, because my first thought was, you know, Jesus Christ, here we go again. Eva and Jen are lying mm-hmm. because they're outside partying. And they're saying they're in the apartment the whole time. But Keith doesn't say he saw Jen or Eva out there. He says he only saw males. But that's that that area, they would it has to be 
someone connected to those units. It's a it's it, the, so you got the front of those four units, and then the and then right across from the alley there is the back of another unit. You know, so they don't have any doors on that side. There's no reason for anybody else to be there unless maybe it was from one of those other units. So maybe that was just assumed. The only person, you know, you know, June Sage wasn't having a party at one in the morning. Eva's unit's the only one that would be out there partying. Nixon says, would it be proper or out of line for police to have June secretly point out the female she saw knocking on her door? Someone she said lived upstairs in the crowd that gathered outside. Yeah, that's what should have been done. Coming up in these next two episodes, we're going to talk a lot more about this. I don't want to, I don't want to get too deeply into it right now. But, but the, the whole June Sage situation just feels like complete bullshit to me. I, I'll, I'll say that. So, yeah, they're, they give this whole description. You guys know my issues with the description already and the issue in the, in the issues surrounding that. But yeah, why wouldn't, if, if she's saying, I'm pretty sure I'm all, I think she says, I'm almost positive is one of the girls from upstairs. And then she's describing the person. Why didn't they say, well, here, let me look at is, do you see the person? Was it her? Was it her? Which one was it? There's a lot of different ways. So, so it's like, first, why didn't they do that? If she gave this report, this is just a whole can of worms, right? So it's like, if she legitimately gave that report, that is what she said, then why the fuck didn't they have her identify positively who it was that, that she saw, like they did with, with Housen? Okay, so he gives, the, you know, in his statement, you have the description. Again, you know my issues with the description. But then they sh- it says in the file, then they showed him a picture and said, you know, or a, a lineup. And they said, oh, yeah, it's her. So they have an idea. Why don't they have? And so then it's like, or, or did they? And they didn't document it. Like, so, I'm telling you, something fucking stinks. Sorry for my language. But something stinks bad <laughs> with this June Sage situation. Next, Lynn says the handwritten note has two sections with obvious different penmanship, although Janine's signature is under both. Wendell Mass on Facebook makes an excellent case that this was a group authored statement. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so Mike, Mike read this question to me before we came in here, and I said, no, it's not. It's the same penmanship. And so then I brought it up on the computer, and we all looked at it, and uh, great catch. I don't know if Wendell's the one that caught that or if other listeners did, but I didn't. You know, I, I guess I just saw the both written in cursive and both signed by Janine Smith. But Zach and Mike very quickly picked it apart and said, look, the T's are different. The P's are different. The O's are different. So, yeah, Janine, Janine Smith, one of, some, the same person didn't write both parts of that note. Well, and you noticed in there, too, there's some verbiage in there where they said, you know, us and we. Right. Yeah. After, after we noticed the mm-hmm. uh, more you guys noticed the differences in the penmanship. Yeah, then then I started looking at what was said, and I think the last paragraph, yeah, it says we us, you know. So yeah, I, I think I think Wendell's spot on. I think it probably was a group effort of them writing down. I don't know why Janine's the one that signed it, and it seems like like when Janine talks about the conversation with June that day when when she's in June also told me that she was scared. That last piece, I think that must be Janine's handwriting. Because we know from other other reports that it was Janine that was in with June Sage that morning, and that was written in first person. So yeah, that part was. But yeah, I think it definitely was a, a group effort, and and for sure not the same person wrote them both. Lynn's last question: Can we get Jen's family to confirm if she is or isn't present in the crime scene video? There are several young women in white shirts in the crowd. If her shirt showed signs of the attack, I think she'd already changed to her black shirt. 
Also, Danny follows up with also possibly Jen at the 53 second mark in the video. What do you think, Bob? Yeah, that should be easy. I um because it's on it's on YouTube, so I'll just have to they're probably listening actually, but I'll I can reach out to the family and have them look through the video and see if they see it. I feel like I remember discussing it with them a wa- long time ago because there was someone that in the video that I thought was Jen and I think they said that it wasn't, but I'll I, I can ask them to to look through it again. On that topic, I don't think nobody was really discussing the shirt. Um, I just want to talk real quick about. I, I, I guess I want to clarify real quickly the 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 basics of the shirt issue. And again, this is something that in the next couple episodes we're going to dig into deeper. But I'm surprised nobody brought this up in the follow up thread. I I really don't think Jen was wearing a black shirt before the murders. I think she changed into a black shirt afterwards, which is another reason why I think that. All those witness statements were fabricated by by Swainson, and I and I say that because you know I mentioned the episode. So Jen always says she's wearing a white shirt the whole time. She tells Detective what I didn't get into the into in the episode is that you know she tell I, I said she told Detective Allen that the white shirt that her white her white clothes should be in or white shirt should be in in Eva's apartment still. What I didn't get into is she actually went to the apartment with Allen to look for them. And the only the only issue there was is she said she was wearing a white she was wearing a white shirt and white shorts and she had changed to a black shirt and jeans before she went to the police station. And when they went in there, he says they found the white shirt but no white shorts. Instead, they but they, but they found a pair of brown shorts. And that's when Alan writes Jennifer then changed her mind and says she might have been wearing the brown shorts that morning. But there was no question there about the white shirt. She says she was wearing a white shirt. They go to the apartment. They find the white shirt. She says that she changed. Eva in her trial testimony says there was a white shirt and a black shirt. She knows she changed but can't remember when, like if it was black then white or white then black. Do you think that maybe Eva said that, that it was white then black, and they that didn't fit what they wanted it to say, so they told her to be confused about when the, ch- the I don't was? think so. I don't think so because it's trial testimony, right? So it's on the fly. It was in cross-examination. Okay. They would have had to to have really prepped her on that. Okay. I, don't, I don't think so. I think I think she and that's again. You're always again always doing these statement analysis, is, and you're you're trying to look like is there a utility in something? Why would somebody be lying about something? Are there indications there are? And that one, it was just kind of off the cuff. I think Coin caught her off guard when he asked about it, and and she's just like, yeah, there was a white one and a black one, and she changed. I don't remember which order. So there's all these indications she's wearing the white shirt. Before that, she didn't change into the black shirt till until afterwards, and yet all these witnesses that saw her before, all these witnesses that we didn't hear from at trial, that didn't sign a written, or you know, we we never get their own words. I guess they signed a statement, but they didn't. We don't have a recording. We don't have a transcript. We don't have them writing anything. We don't have them testifying. All say, yeah, she was wearing this black shirt. And the point I was trying to make, if it wasn't clear enough, was in the episode was. Swainton says when he talked to Jennifer, which we know was around 1.30 in the afternoon, we know that because in his report, he says he talked to Eva and then he talked to Jennifer. And he says when he finished talking to Eva, she signed a consent to search form. If we cross reference to the consent to search form, which is on our website, that was signed at 1.33 p.m. So it's somewhere after 1 o'clock, 1.30, when they interviewed Jennifer. And when he interviews her, he notes she's wearing a black shirt then. It's the same thing as the the knife all the all the stuff that we find out that that Alan is injecting into Jennifer's statement you know the large butcher knife because he thinks that she was stabbed with a large butcher knife 
And so therefore, Jennifer confesses to a large butcher knife. It's a, In my opinion, that's the same thing that's happening here is Detective Swainson sees her in a black shirt. And so he puts in the statements that, oh, everybody saw her wearing a black shirt. I'm just going to end justifies the means, right? We're just going to fudge this a little bit after the fact, and, uh, and it'll, it'll help strengthen our case. But what he didn't know is that she had changed shirts. And there's, and there's absolutely no one can convince me there's any utility in Jennifer saying in her confession when she's admitting to being there and saying that she was wearing a white shirt. There's no reason for her to lie about it. What's the difference? It, it doesn't make a difference at all. While we're talking about the crime scene video, Danny says, do you believe the crime scene video was always silent? Camcorders that my dad used at the time for family videos definitely recorded sound. If not, what are the chances of us being able to access that sound? There, there wasn't any sound. Gosh, I, I, I should have looked this up before we sat down. I, I forgot this question was coming. Um, but it, it's in, if you look through the police files, in one of the, it was either in Verbitsky's or I think it was actually Detective Allen's, maybe in his supplements in scene summary, where he says the, uh, very specifically, if my memory is accurate, that there was a crime scene video recorded with video only, no sound. So it, it, it appears that it was intentionally recorded without sound, which doesn't surprise me because you know, even if you're not dealing with any kind of corruption or anything like that, I think it's because kind of, I've had other crime scene videos from other cases where the same thing, no sound. Melgar's case, video had no sound. A lot of them are Perringer's, no sound. Uh, and, and the reason is because that crime scene video is going to become evidence, which means Every think about it, if you're spending a half hour running around a crime scene with a camera and you're chatting with the other cops and you're chatting with the bystanders, literally every word you say is now officially evidence. And so I think it's I think it's pretty common just based on my limited experience from what I've seen. It seems like it's pretty common practice to have the the sound muted on those videos. Adrian says, why is the entire EMS report redacted? At least we got the times off of it, but I don't understand why the rest of it is classified. I don't either. You know, if it came from, well, it did come from the DA's office. So maybe that's, I, I know, and Mike, you and I have met the guy, Brian Rose at the Harris County DA's office. Good guy. Good guy. Yeah. And he does, all, he's the one that puts this stuff together. Very, very thorough with redactions. And you know, when we get stuff from Harris County, it's, it's, it's more heavily redacted than it is in other places. And he is like a letter of the law guy. For example, he'll redact out a fingerprint that's like on a piece of paper, like an inked fingerprint. He'll redact it out where nobody else does that. But he's like showed me the the law that says fingerprints are technically protected information. So we can't share that uh, DNA profiles. Like, like if you get a DNA report from Harris County, they will typically uh, redact out the actual allele sequences. Because that is technically personal, private information that, that is supposed to be. So that's all I can think of is because of the, of the of the current HIPAA laws now that maybe there you know any medical information. And to be honest, we were pushing them to hurry up and get us the the file because it was taking a long time. And I think that may have backfired because. So I think I think probably what happened is the EMS report. There's a lot of information on the EMS report that isn't protected like the times and names and dates and stuff like that. But because maybe because they were, because they were in a hurry, it wasn't actually Brian doing it, it was somebody else in the office that was doing it. But I was kind of going through Brian to nudge this guy along because it was taking so long. I think they might've just said, just forget it. Just redact the entire page 
just, you know, to, to, to speed things up because there's a lot of fully redacted pages in there. I thought about even, and I may, I don't, I'm not only going to have a couple of days and I got a lot to do when I'm in Houston next week. So, but I, I may see if it's possible for me to go in and, and actually review the file in the office. Brian's done that with me before in the Melgar case where, you know, th- things maybe you can't give us d- copies of everything, but it'll let me like sort through and look through the file and, and maybe see what's missing. But, but I, I don't know if I have time to do that on this trip. Donna says, can you review the timeline from that morning with the new times from the EMS report, starting with Catalina's call with her nephew or Jen's page, whichever you think was first? Okay. Yeah. I can give you where off the top of my head, but I think I've got these down pretty well now. So times that I'm comfortable in that we don't have any evidence to refute. Juan says he talked to Catalina about eight in the morning. Jen says she gets a page at 845. Gets up and you know brushes her teeth, washes her face, gets dressed, walks to Janet's. So we're thinking Jen leaves around eight fifty ish, if that time is accurate. And then we have you know she says that she's at Janet's for I think she's like thirty minutes or something like that, maybe even long. I don't remember how long she says. Again, I don't put much, I don't put much into the times as far as you know somebody who wasn't paying attention to time saying about how long something took. And then the next, the next anchored time we have now, where we were working off of a 9.15 time of death by paramedics, you know, for, for weeks now, I've been questioning that. That doesn't, that doesn't add up with the, with the call to police 27 minutes later. What we found out from this new dispatch log is that the call to police, that, so Keith Truesdale's call to police, as far as we know, that's the only one that happened, the first one that happened, was at 9.44 a.m. And so I had so based the the way I've worked the timeline was we backed that up then. So if if he if he called, well he called after he had been grabbed by Lavana, he had jumped the fence, he had found Catalina, moved the pot, unlocked the door, let the management in, and they talked, and then he looked around the apartment and then Pam left to go grab another phone, and then he actually found the phone and he calls nine one one. So I speculate, so let's say, you know, does it give us some nice even numbers that that took nine minutes? That means that Eva, or the whole process from Eva running to the office until that point of, of being about nine minutes, that would mean that Eva ran to the office at around 935, right? So that's time for her to go to the office, talk to the managers, them to follow her, get to the door, find out it's locked. Go get Keith. Keith comes back. Keith jumps the fence, goes in. Everything I just said, moves the planner, opens the door. They come in. They look for the phone. Finally gets the phone, calls 911. So our timeline, our kind of a window of opportunity for Jennifer would be that uh, she leaves at 8.50. And by 9.35, Eva is running to the office. So there's a 45-minute window there. Other times we can we can slide in there, but again, they're not particularly accurate. Is June Sage saying that the whole event that she saw occurred at around nine thirty? She says around nine thirty or so. So was that nine forty five, nine uh, nine twenty five? We don't know. So if you know if if it was at nine thirty and Eva's running to the office at nine thirty five, if those are accurate, then June Sage likely saw, I would think, the killers because that's enough time. That five-minute window there is enough time for the knocking on the door that she saw, 
The killer's jumping in, entering the apartment, attacking Catalina, killing her, and then getting out and fleeing. And then Eva with the with the screaming, which I think is fake. But even if it was fake, I think she faked it. If she if it was fake, the screaming inside, and then her leaving. At least five, at least about five minutes for that to have occurred. So to me, that means that I think the murder was happening somewhere right around nine thirty. Even though we've we've kind of taken Jennifer from everything we've seen, and we don't necessarily believe that she's involved, but I think that you know before the timeline, we basically all but included her because of it. Exclude, exclude, all her. but excluded, all but excluded yeah. her. Now, I mean, it's everybody's back in play. I feel like almost for sure. So I had through our investigate through Jennifer's statement analysis and through everything else, had already found. You know, I, I think I, I still maintain she has no guilty knowledge of the crime. I don't think she was ever in that par- apartment. I don't think she knows what happened. But there's still a lot of possibilities there, right? There's still a lot of different things going on. But then with the 915 time of death, in my opinion, that 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 sealed the deal. She's 100% innocent because she couldn't have done it. There's not enough time. Now that we're pushing the call back to 945, that has to that has to come out of our analysis. You can't say she couldn't have done it. She absolutely had time to commit this now. So, yeah, it's it's definitely put her back in the suspect pool, and we have to look closer at it. I still maintain that there's no evidence that she actually did this, but there's certainly now we can't say that she couldn't have done this. All right, our last question is from Ashley, and it's not a question, it's a comment. She says, thanks for including the lease application info for Catalina as it relates to her financial situation in Sunday's episode. It filled in those blank spaces where we, I, Wondered about savings and different types of life insurance policies. Yeah, I, and I think a lot of listeners, Zach included, kind of repeat that sentiment. It was a good thing to fill in all those gaps. And I'm hoping to find out more. I know there were some people on the fan page that didn't care for my comment that it seemed like, you know, she didn't, it seemed like she didn't have much money and she didn't have anybody relying on her. So she probably didn't have life insurance. Uh, I was certainly corrected by several listeners who said, you know, there's a lot of other reasons to have life insurance, especially back in the 90s. A lot of people had whole life policies that were more of an investment, or maybe she just had a a life insurance policy so she wouldn't burden her nephew for burying her. So that's possible. That being said, as you guys know, uh, as I've been saying, I'm leaving next week to go to Houston uh, to, to further the investigations. One of the stops on my list is to go back to Juan's house. Hopefully he'll talk to me again. And uh, and I can ask him some of those questions to fill in a little bit more. Feel free to to shoot us emails if you have questions you want me to ask Juan or message us on Facebook or, or wherever. But somehow I'll get those to us if you have certain questions you want us to ask him. But, yeah, he's on my list. And on that topic, again, as I've, I've mentioned to you guys before, when, 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 when I'm traveling, and, and this week's bad because I've got uh, the full week in Houston, I'm home for 12 hours, and then I'm going straight to Kansas City for the True Crime Podcast Festival. It creates a production issue, but we we have one of our listeners, Chris Dolan, kind of saved the day. Uh, it just so happened he reached out. He's somebody that uh, I've always seen on the page as someone who who leans towards Jen being guilty. He and I disagree on just about everything, but we always have really, really, I think, thoughtful and meaningful conversations, and, 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 and they're productive. And we were having one of those conversations on the fan page earlier this week. And he suggested that, hey, maybe you should have me on sometime, but we can just have this conversation and over the phone. Uh, and then maybe the listeners can kind of hear both sides of this. 
And I thought that was a great idea. Uh, last night, I had Chris on the show on the phone. And we recorded what ended up being a very long conversation that is going to be our next two episodes. We kind of have it broken half. So it's me and Chris talking. It's it's a very it, you know, this is it's not a debate. It's a conversation. I think we both learned a lot from each other. It was a really for me. It was a very 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 productive conversation. I think you're going to find it interesting. And you know, there's there's a couple. Just so you guys again try to be full transparency. The reason it's two episodes is a couple things. One, we don't do hour and forty five minute episodes, and two, that gives us a little breathing room to get prepped and for me to be gone in Houston to to investigate with with boots on the ground. So uh, thanks, Chris, for that. I think all of you guys are really going to enjoy it. It was a great conversation. And thank you all for listening. And uh, our next uh, next week's follow-up will be live. From, I'll be live from Houston. Yeah, it looks like we're going to be doing another Zoom follow-up. Yeah, we've we've gotten very good at those uh, over, the, over the course of the pandemic. And uh, last but not least, before we let you guys go, don't forget, if you are going to be around Kansas City, there's still an opportunity. I think they still have tickets on sale for the True Crime Podcast Festival. They're 150 bucks for the whole weekend. Josh Hallmark, a bunch of other cool podcasters are going to be there. And uh, if you use our promo code ROUGH, they'll give you 10% off. People have asked me if I'm going to be able to do a fan meetup while I'm there. I'm not. I'm only there for one night. I'm literally flying at 6 in the morning and back out at, at 9 o'clock the next morning. So everything we'll be doing will be, will be part of the festival. But hopefully I'll see a bunch of you there. And like you just said, him. He'll be there alone. Mike and I are staying back this time. Right. They weren't invited. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. 
Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.